Good morning. I'm reading from 2 Kings 15, verses 1 through 5. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Jecoliah. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. The Lord afflicted the king with leprosy until the day he died, and he lived in a separate house. Now I'm reading from 2 Kings 18, verses 1 through 8. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, son of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down Asherah's poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, and up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord, and he did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. And the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Andrea. We join me in prayer as we unfold the scriptures this morning. Oh Lord, would you bless the reading and the preaching of your word? Would you transform us? through the power of the Holy Spirit so that this wouldn't be a dull or lifeless exercise or anything trite or rote, but that you would transform us, open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our hearts to hold your word and our hands to serve you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, this Lent, as you know, if you've been worshiping with us, we're thinking about the seven deadly sins. Uh, the seven deadly sins are not a category that we find in the Bible. They're, it's a human, it's a man-made construct. Um, so it's not, there's nowhere in the Bible that says there are these seven sins that are deadly and all the others, they're, they're not really uh, as bad. Uh, it's just a product of tradition, but it's a helpful tradition and it's a helpful list uh, for a number of reasons. One is it forces us to think about sin. We don't like to think or talk a whole lot about sin, um, but it's really important. So the, uh, one of the Puritan authors about 400 years ago, Thomas Brooks, wrote this. He said, uh, our enemy will bait our hook with anything we find desirable. He will gladly give us sex, money, power, pleasure, fame, fortune, and relationships. Satan's goal is for us to take the bait without seeing the hook. And once the hook is in our mouth, he pulls hard on the line and reels us in. That's a fitting image, isn't it? 
That, that if, in fact, if we never think about sin, if we never talk about sin, then we see this, this good-looking bait, this juicy-looking worm that we think is life and don't realize there is death inside of it. That's one of the benefits of thinking about uh, the seven deadly sins. Another is this, that every seven deadly sin has a corresponding virtue, like a life-giving virtue. So really, we're not just thinking about sin, we're thinking about sin and holiness, about vice and virtue. But there's a danger among a lot of Christians, and this is probably true of every one of us to some extent, that we think being a Christian just means to be virtuous. So if I ask you, are you a Christian? I I hope your answer is yes. Sometimes I'll ask somebody, are you a Christian? They'll say, well, like, I'm trying. I'm trying. And I know right then and there, if somebody's answer to, are you a Christian, is, well, I'm trying, that they've got it. They actually don't know what it means to be a Christian. Because being a Christian is not about trying. It's not about working hard to be more virtuous. In fact, you don't become a Christian because you are moral. It's not like if you're just moral enough, then eventually you'll crest the hill and you can call yourself a Christian. That's not at all what it is. Being moral or virtuous does not make you a Christian. In fact, I know many people who are not Christians who are more moral and virtuous than most Christians I know. But becoming a Christian and accepting the grace of Jesus will make you more moral or virtuous. The order matters so deeply. Your morality does not make you a Christian. Your morality does not cause God to accept you. But understanding God's acceptance will change your life. You see the difference there? That's why it's important, and that's our premise in this series. Uh, This morning, as we think about the seven deadly sins, we're thinking about sloth. Sloth. It's not a word we use a whole lot, um, except almost every night when uh, my daughter says, Daddy, let's do the sloth, and I hold out my arm, and she hangs upside down uh, from it. Um, Sloth is, uh, it's it's the same, some people call it laziness, laziness. I don't think that's a great, when I think of laziness, I think of the, you know, the stereotype is like the, the 27-year-old who's still living in mom and dad's basement and just plays video games, and that's not really what we're talking about. Um, why did that one get a laugh? Uh, <laughs> that struck close to home for somebody. Um, maybe a better word is apathy. Maybe a better word is apathy. Laziness feels a little more surface. Apathy is just a deep-seated, a deep-rooted not caring or not taking a certain amount of initiative. And it's not so much that nothing matters to somebody who's apathetic, but something else matters more. Something else matters more. It's going to be helpful this morning, I hope, to think about, I'm going to use the term sloth because that's just the traditional word, to help us uncover what matters to us and what matters more to us. This morning, we're thinking about it from the context of the end of 2 Kings, and we're going to look at two different kings of Judah, two different Old Testament kings who have a lot in common, but one very important difference, and maybe that'll help us to uncover a little bit of sloth. (laughs) Let's actually start with the second. Andrea read, and, and brilliantly, there were a lot of hard Old Testament names, so thank you, Andrea. 
Uh, let's start with the second king, Hezekiah. He actually comes later. This is 2 Kings 18. Hezekiah is the son of Ahaz, who is one of the worst kings in all of Israel. And really the key event that I want to focus on is there in 18 verse 4. If you have your Bible open or your program, you can look at it. 2 Kings 18 verse 4. When Hezekiah became king, he removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. Now, this is one of those details that to most of us, unless you really know your Old Testament, uh, you don't really understand it, and you're likely to just skim over it and move on. But let's dig into that, because this is actually really important. Hezekiah destroys four main features uh, of Israelite worship. One is the high places. Literally, that just means a high elevation. There's a common, common theme, especially in ancient religions, but you still see it some today, that the higher up you get, the closer you are to God. And so a lot of Israelites had built, especially priests, had built um, altars at the top of big hills or even mountains where they would offer sacrifices to God. That seems fine, but a, a really good law-observing Jew might wonder about that, specifically because the law says that you're supposed to offer sacrifices in God's temple, in God's temple, not other places. Now, the temptation is to think, well, what's the big deal? I'm offering a sacrifice to God. I'm doing all the right thing in the wrong place. You might remember a couple weeks ago. Remember we talked about Saul a couple weeks ago? And Samuel the prophet had told Saul, go down and wait for me seven days, and I'll come and then offer sacrifice. Saul got impatient. And he offered the sacrifice before Samuel arrived. And we saw that, that the right thing done the wrong way is actually the wrong thing. In the high places, Israelites are doing the right thing. They're making sacrifices, but ostensibly in the wrong way, in a place other than where God said. See, we're, we're experts at this, every one of us, really. We are experts at really deceiving ourselves. We say, I know God said to do this, but I'm going to do it just a little, it's just a little easier to do it a little differently. God will understand. Imagine, um, that's not really, this isn't, that's not obedience. Imagine, imagine with me, just, just hypothetically, imagine that you have a child who's about five years old. And imagine after dinner, you tell that five-year-old child, I want you to go upstairs, it's bedtime, and brush your teeth. And just imagine with me that 10 minutes later, it's been really quiet, and you go upstairs, and you find the lights to the bathroom are still off. And then you find your five-year-old in her room. You say, what are you doing? She says, I'm cleaning my room. Now, it's clear for a five-year-old, cleaning my room means I'm playing, but I can justify it this way. But even if your five-year-old was cleaning your room, how do you as a parent feel? I didn't ask you to clean your room. I asked you to brush your teeth. Oh, it's just a little thing, and I'm doing the right thing. You want me to clean my room, don't you, Dad? I didn't ask you to clean your room. I asked you to brush your teeth. We all do that, don't we? But you see, obedience on our own terms is really not obedience at all. 
and the high places represent obedience on the people's terms, not on God's terms. The sacred stones um, are, are kind of similar, a little bit different. Uh, the only other place, we actually only see this word, the Hebrew word, one other time in the Old Testament. That's in Genesis. Jacob and a man named Laban have made an agreement, and to commemorate that agreement they made, they raised this pillar. It literally, sacred stones, the literal word is pillar, um, almost as a, a memorial or a monument to remind themselves of the agreement that they had made. It was probably a pretty common practice, probably a lot like today. We put up plaques to remember certain things, and you go around town, and there's, there's a historical marker right outside. Um, imagine it's almost like historical markers or plaques that you see around. Hezekiah smashed them. He smashed the Asherah poles. There's not much description of these, but every time we see them in the Old Testament, it's always in the context of worshiping other gods. And lastly, there's this bronze snake. What's with that? Um, at some point, this is back in Exodus, the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness, um, and there comes upon them an, an infestation of these venomous snakes, vipers or something like that. And the snakes actually kill a lot of them and, and bite a lot and make them sick. And God tells Moses, craft this bronze serpent and put it on a pole and raise it up really high so everybody can see it. And everybody who sees this bronze snake will be healed of the venom from the snake bites that they sustained. We don't hear about them, that snake again until this point in 2 Kings. But there's this really important detail that we do see. Did you notice it? It said the Israelites had started burning incense to the snake. What do all of these things have in common? Well, the Asherah poles are a little different, but what do they have in common? With the exception of the Asherah poles, these are good, the sacred stones, the high places, the bronze snake, these are ostensibly good things that are being misused. They are signs that are meant to point to God, that are meant to help the Israelites to worship God. But instead of worshiping God, the Israelites begin worshiping the signs instead. Do you see the difference? Here's, here's, the, best, here's the best illustration I could think of. This is another exercise of the imagination. Imagine it's, it's 35 minutes ago, and you, you come into the sanctuary ready for worship, and you see this communion table right behind me in splinters, like just wrecked. And imagine that the, um, the candlesticks here, the silver, I don't know if they're actually silver or not, but whatever, those candlesticks are like broken, it's just snapped in half. And imagine that, that uh, where we have the cross up there, like the cross is just missing, and there's this faded outline behind where the cross used to be, and nobody can find it. And now imagine you say, well, what, what happened? And imagine I were to get, and I'm not saying this is the case, but this is just an exercise of the imagination. I were to say, you've, you've been worshiping that communion table and the cross and the silver more than you worship God. That would be a pretty strong statement, wouldn't it? That's about the statement that Hezekiah, in fact, the statement Hezekiah is making is even more radical than that. Why make it? Because as humans, it's so easy for us to make good things into ultimate things. It's so easy for us to worship things that have been created instead of worshiping the creator. Hezekiah is making a strong, strong point. Now let's hit the pause button. 
and rewind to his predecessor, Azariah. This is 2 Kings 15. Azariah has a lot in common. In fact, if you read the accounts, they start almost word for word the exact same way. He's young. Azariah begins to rule when he's 16. And it even says that Azariah did what was right in the eyes of God. But, this is really fascinating to me. Whoever wrote 2 Kings makes a point to note that Azariah did not take down the high places. And we can assume that the people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Azariah. We can read a little bit more about him in 2 Chronicles 26, which is kind of a parallel account. And it says basically his pride was his downfall. He was a great leader. He was an incredible military leader. He, he oversaw an awful lot of military victories. He was a great economic leader. Israel's economy, or Judah's economy, prospered and flourished. People had jobs. Their GDP was, was sky high. He had a very successful reign. Ostensibly, he, he reigned 52 years. That's a long tenure. That's a long time to do anything. But he did not take down the high places. And eventually we learn that he was afflicted with leprosy. We know that if you had leprosy, you were unclean. You were not allowed into the temple or into the presence of God. And so he lived his whole life apart from the presence of God. That's a very different tone than the tone we read about Hezekiah. There was no one. This is straight from first, Second Kings 18. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, before him or after him. Now, this is, this is ab- I, just, I just wonder if that author has King David in mind even, as if to say this, this man was even greater than King David. Why? Verse 6, he held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commandments the Lord God had given Moses and the Lord was with him. Azariah, the first king, was excluded from the temple and from God's presence. Hezekiah enjoyed God's presence. It says the Lord was with him. What's the difference? The only difference we get in the text is Hezekiah removed the high places and Azariah did not. Why? Scripture doesn't tell us. (laughs) Doesn't tell us. We get a couple of vague clues But it's not hard to put yourself in their shoes at least a little bit and imagine a little bit. Imagine after years and decades and maybe centuries of tradition and of of priests offering sacrifices in the high places and of people burning incense to this golden snake. It's not hard to imagine that if you were to suddenly take those things away, you would experience a fair amount of resistance. That would make you a pretty unpopular king among your people. It would make you a very unpopular king among the priests, the most powerful people in your whole culture. You're taking their livelihood. And is it really that big a deal? Like at least they're offering sacrifices. These are significant religious symbols. Do you dare take them down? 
See, how easy is it to let, should we just let certain things slide? To think, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to die on that hill. And we shouldn't die on every hill. I don't think that's the right solution, but, but how often do we say that over and over and over until we find ourselves not on any hill at all? As a king, maybe, okay, so maybe I'll enact some other reforms. I will do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. I'll do some things that are less controversial. But I'm not throwing rocks at that hornet's nest. You see, when we, when we talk about sloth, we're not talking about just the surface-level laziness that, that says, I'm just going to watch TV all day and do nothing else. We're talking about the, really the deeper mindset that at least acknowledges that usually the better thing is the harder thing. And I'm just not feeling it. There is a similarity, I think, with what we would call that surface-level laziness. It's not, that, it's not that somebody has a complete lack of self-awareness, but it's a lot easier to turn on Netflix than it is to, to do whatever else, to do pretty much anything else. <laughs> but that mindset is not just about how you spend your Saturday afternoon. It becomes deeply spiritual. It becomes a mindset, it can become a mindset that says, I know God says X. Whatever, fill in the blank. But that's really hard, and it's a lot easier to just, just tweak it a little and just do this other thing. I know God says, be patient with that person who's, who's so hard, who really tries my patience. He says to be patient, especially with the person who tries my patience, and especially when I'm not feeling very patient. But it's so much easier to lob a little sarcastic comment and then just disappear. I know God says, he says, be careful what you take into your body. Be careful the content I consume. Be careful what TV shows I watch and, and what apps I scroll through and what websites I visit and what accounts I follow. But it's, it's digital. It's not real. Like, right? It's not like it's hurting anyone. It's just entertainment. I know God says that there's a standard for sexuality and that sexual intimacy is to be cherished only within the boundary of a marriage. But come on, Chris, this is the 21st century. I know God says give to his kingdom sacrificially, like in ways that I actually feel it. Not just kind of a little bit of what's left over after I've paid all of my other expenses for the month. But that's not realistic. But we see that holiness, that godliness, that Christ-likeness isn't forged in moments of crisis. It's tested and revealed in moments of crisis, but it's forged long before that in those small, everyday, seemingly insignificant decisions of life. Think of, um, think of a, if, a steel chain. You're moving you know, something very heavy, and you need a steel chain to lift it. You want the steel, the, the steel links in that chain to be incredibly strong, don't you? In fact, after you've, so say, you know, I don't know, piano, you, you wrap the chain around the piano and you lift the piano, like after the piano is in the air is not the time to start strengthening those links of, of steel. 
The time to strengthen those links of steel is before that moment of truth. In fact, when it's lifting the piano, that's when the, that's when the steel gets tested, but the strength is forged when? At the foundry. And I don't really know the first thing about making steel, but I'm pretty sure I'm right on this. <laughs> and if not, you get the illustration at least, that there are a thousand small decisions that go into determining whether that steel is strong enough. Was it hot enough in that vat of liquid steel? Was the pressure right? Were the conditions right? Was the steel pure, the actual, like the, the, the molten steel that they used to form into the chains, was it pure enough so there aren't impurities that would weaken it? And when it was formed into chains, were those formed in such a way that they won't snap and break? See, all those little decisions beforehand are what forge the strength into that steel change. And the moment a steel worker becomes a little bit apathetic, a little slothful, and all those small decisions, you see it later on. When we think about sloth, when we think about apathy, we see that holiness, that following God, in all of those little day-to-day details, when we, when we really, we don't even think about it a lot of times, or we don't want to, or we're not, that matters. That the small details actually matter. And it's, I know, it's easy to take the easy way. Jesus knew that it's easy to take the easy way. Listen to what Jesus says about this. This is from Matthew 7. He says, enter, he's talking about the kingdom of God, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the path that leads to life. And this is convicting. Then Jesus says, and only a few find it. The path of least resistance is so much easier, I know. About a year ago, I was, um, I was going through just a very kind of hard season. Just, you know, you have those seasons where, like, for a month, nothing goes right. And I was talking to one of my mentors about it, Doug, and he said this thing that was so encouraging. He said, Chris, everything worth doing is uphill. Everything worth doing is uphill. And that's stuck. It would be so easy to get a little apathetic, a little lazy, a little slothful or whatever, and say, you know what? I just, I just can't. I can't deal with this. And there is an easier way out. But everything worth doing is uphill. It's not easy. It won't always be popular or make us well-liked. But whose acceptance are we after? Now, I need to pause right here. I I know (laughs) it would be so easy to veer into a frankly very destructive sermon from here because it would be so easy to hear all of this and to take from it, okay, so I just need to be, pay attention to the small details and, and care about holiness and the small areas of my life, like just those, and then God will accept me. If you want God to accept you, then do the right thing, even in the little things. Hear me loud and clear. If I said that, that would be spiritual. That would be, frankly, spiritual abuse. That's, that's manipulation. It's malpractice. 
That's not the gospel. Listen to the gospel. Listen to the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is this. God accepts you, period. Full stop. Right now. Right where you are. And he knows everything. <laughs> like, you know this, right? This can be very scary or it can be very liberating. That God knows everything about you. He, knew, he knows those 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 kind of shady areas that haven't seen the light of day in a long time. He knows those corners of your life that you hope nobody else finds out about. He knows the corners that you've cut. He knows every single one of your shortcomings, and he accepts you. Do you believe that? In Romans 5, Paul tells us this. He says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. As we're in this season of Lent and as we're looking ahead to Good Friday and to Resurrection Sunday, we're thinking very explicitly about the cross. What happened on the cross? On the cross, Jesus Christ gave his life to forgive, we, we, most of us, I think, would say this, that Jesus Christ gave his life to forgive our sin. On the cross, Jesus Christ gave his life for you right as you are. It's not as though Jesus gave his life and built up this storehouse, this bank of grace, and then he's willing to start distributing grace to you once you get your act together. No, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were apathetic, while we were slothful, while we were lazy, while we did break every one of the seven deadly sins and all 639 others in the Old Testament, Christ died for us. When you realize the order that Jesus' death and Jesus' grace come first, that will change your life. And that's the difference between freedom and fear. If you think that coming to Christ or getting God's acceptance depends on you just being virtuous enough, you will live your whole life in fear. Whether you realize it or not. Because you will always be wondering, am I good enough? Am I diligent enough? Am I virtuous enough? Am I moral enough? Am I hardworking enough? Am I holy enough? Am I righteous enough? And you'll always be working harder to get more of that because what if it's not enough? And frankly, if that's how it worked, you would be exactly right to ask all those questions. The good news of Jesus is that you weren't enough. I wasn't enough. I'm still not enough. None of us is enough. But God loves you so deeply, even in your brokenness, even in your anxiety and your insecurity and your fear that you just don't measure up, even in those places where you've been lazy and you've been apathetic about all the little details, that God loves you and he loves me, period. So much that he was willing to die for us. When you realize that, when you internalize that,
when you trust that, you know what happens? Your life changes. And somehow, there's some mystery here. We don't understand exactly how it works. I just know that it works. God will change you. And the virtue that you're looking so hard to accomplish or achieve, like it just inevitably happens. Because grace is not achieved, grace is received. The gospel is not about you trying to be good enough. Our faith is Jesus saying, I, I am good enough. Jesus Christ is good enough. His death is enough to give you life. Jesus says, trust in me. Let me give you my goodness. That's freedom, you see? Look back with me, if you would, at 2 Kings 18, verse 5. Hezekiah, what? Trusted the Lord. It would be easy to read this and said, Hezekiah did the right thing and therefore God accepted him. But even in Hezekiah's time, it's not about how much or how little he did. Hezekiah trusted the Lord. Do you trust the Lord? Do you trust, do you really believe that his love for you Like there's just no end to it. And will you let that change you? Let's pray. Lord, change us. It can be convicting. It can be nerve-wracking. It's not always pleasant or comfortable to think about sin. But the truth is we all have it. We're all marked in some way by it. And you have taken all of our sin on you. And as you died, somehow you took our sin on yourself and you gave us your life. So help us to receive your life. Help us to practice and live out what it means to be set free from the tyranny of sin and from the tyranny of the fear that we just don't quite measure up. Set us free. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.